Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Holly Ainley, Head of Programs and Creative Engagement at the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. In this episode of The Writing Life, we're bringing you a conversation between the writer Polly Atkin and one of NCW's program managers, Annie Rutherford, about writing with a chronic illness. You'll hear Polly and Annie discuss writing and navigating the publishing industry as a person who is chronically ill. They discuss Polly's 2023 memoir, Some of Us Just Fall, and explore how Polly imagined time as a chronically ill person. Also, how to advocate for yourself as a disabled writer and their hopes for embedded accessibility in the future of the publishing industry. Polly Atkin is a multi-award-winning writer, essayist, and poet. She is the author of the poetry collections Basic Nest Architecture, which won a Northern Writers Award, and Much With Body, which was longlisted for the Laurel Prize. She also wrote Recovering Dorothy, the first biography to focus on Dorothy Wordsworth's later life and illness. Without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to Annie in conversation with Polly Atkin. Polly, it's lovely to have you. Welcome to The Writing Life. Um, I wanted to start, I feel like asking how are you is a really loaded question (laughs) when you're chronically ill. So I wanted to start by saying, how are you on this day in this moment? Um, I'm okay. In a little while, I am going for my um, 10 weekly B12 shot, which is amazing because it always feels a little bit like one of those super serums in um, superhero movies that it does give me a kind of instant boost. Um, So um, that that will cheer me up enormously. Um, Other than that, you know, I'm upright. That's okay. Cool. Um, so we're talking today about Some of Us Just Fall, your memoir, which came out, I think, almost six months ago now. Am I right? It's just over five. Yeah. So it, it was July the 6th was publication nice. day. Um, and yeah, it's a memoir about living with EDS and hemochromatosis and the decades long journey to getting diagnosed. <laughs> and one of the things that I really loved about the book is that it obviously talks about the experience of living with chronic illness, but it also really reflects it. And I wondered if we could start off by talking a little bit about that. Oh, yes, please. Because that's very much what I wanted to incorporate. I wanted to both explain the experience for people who who don't know it, um, reflect it for people who do, but also um, create a, a sense of that experience for readers as well was really important to me actually in in the writing of it. Nice. So should we talk maybe a little bit about the the structure of the book and the way yeah. that it kind of reflects a sense of time? Yeah, let's do. Okay. So there are chapters. They have headings. I know. <laughs> crazy format. <laughs> um so you've got sort of various headings that are very um they're obviously very physical of kind of fracture and dislocation, but they're also quite tied to quite an alienating sense of time or experience? Mm. Do you maybe want to take that as a starting off point? 
Yes, um, that's really interesting, actually, that I haven't thought of the chapter titles in in terms of time in that way, but they actually are completely, aren't they? Um, so I, I I know that they're ideas that have metaphorical weight as, as well as physical weight. So um, particularly things like dislocation and fracture, um, they're things that we use metaphorically all the time in times that I in ways that I think can be quite um, troubling and sometimes a little bit problematic in in mm-hmm. disability terms um, in the same way as we we use pain metaphorically all the time um, and there's a strong discourse in in disability um, circles about not being a metaphor and disability not being used as a metaphor um, but at the same time the metaphorical weight of those words I think has something in it which is really useful for thinking about some of that experience of of chronic illness. So when I was putting those headings in I was thinking about aspects of my conditions which are really important and really central to my experience of life as a chronically ill person and how then they reflect aspects of my life and my kind of biography with my illness biography, um, as it were. Um, so the things that kind of popped out, um, dislocation and fracture and diagnosis were all central moments in a way they're kind of spots of, of time in a Wordsworthian mm-hmm. sense that they're things that both repeat, um, but are also kind of linked to particular moments as well. Um, but I hadn't thought about the way that we actually use those words to talk about time. I I thought about how we use them to talk about place, I think, often. Um, but we do use them to talk about time too. And um, that's really interesting. And I think must have been there subliminally and not in the forefront of my mind. So thank you for noticing that. Bringing <laughs> <laughs> new aspects to already written works. Um, and one of the things that's really, I think, quite sort of quite an identifying characteristic of the book is the way that time sort of builds upon itself and then sort of I'm hand gesturing which is really unhelpful (laughs) in a podcast isn't it um but it's almost like a wave you have these kind of moments of coming forward in your life and going back again um which I think create yeah I don't know plays into for me this sense of kind of fractured dislocated time which clearly was not intentional well no no it 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 was um but I hadn't thought about it it was very intentional but I hadn't thought about it in the in the chapter headings Mm. (laughs) bizarrely (laughs) (laughs) I thought about it in every other aspect of how I was putting it together (laughs) but not in the in those actual words so you were even more well-rounded than you thought can you talk about some of those other aspects like what were they yeah, so um, thinking about chronology particularly, uh, so a, a lot of the book is about how I experience time or don't experience time uh, <laughs> in lots of different ways. And I've always struggled with um, the concept of linear time, I suppose. And um, I find uh, there's a, a game I talk about in it that my best friend Laura and I played together when we were little, um, where we tried to, to guess the accurate clock time as much as possible and we could kind of hone into it in a way um like we were kind of picking something out of a a flow of a river um but unless I do that 
I feel completely dislocated from clock time, from what other people think is a kind of flow of time that I believe people understand as happening, <laughs> which for me is not. <laughs> you know, when I was in my early 20s and I read um, about holographic universe theory and kind of quantum ideas that, that all times and all things exist at once, that made a lot more sense to me than anything I'd ever been told about time and the idea of, of time's arrow. And I think particularly how that relates to time is experienced through chronic illness and through the disabled body and the concept of crypt time, which I talk about in the book as well, um, is then highlighted by the kinds of experiences that I write about in this book that are common to so many chronically ill and disabled people of going round and round and round these diagnostic processes, but also illness experiences that you're always spiraling back round to the same place. And I was very taken when I was younger, again, when I was in my early 20s, um, when I first read The Third Policeman by Flann O'Brien, that there's this quote that I quote in the book about hell being circular. And I thought that's that's how time is for me, especially time when I'm really ill does feel like this, mm. this loop that just goes back and back and back. But what I, I ended up thinking is that it is more like a spiral and I've read a couple of other people talking about this recently as well, which has been really interesting because I've not seen anyone else describe time in quite that way before. And this year it's cropped up in a couple of places of time as looping backgrounds, the same point, but you have different information and different knowledge. So you're not, you're never quite in the same moment, um, but you're always kind of on top of it and looking back into it somehow. Um, and I wanted to create that sense with the book in the structure of the book. Um, and I had quite a lot of resistance from various parties along the way to the idea that you could have a something that could ostensibly be a memoir, which wasn't chronological, which didn't start with, I was born in this place and then did that. And then I grew up <laughs> and I, for starters, I, I couldn't write like that at all because I don't think like that. So it was really hard trying to do that. Um, mm. But also I wanted to create that, that sense of, of looping. And in, in that first chapter, Fracture, I, I talk about um, time and how I understood it through my first two fractures, which happened when I was 18 months old and four years old of time as a bit like um, the bandages which go around a traditional plaster of Paris plaster cast and what happens then when you split them open um, and that to me is then kind of stuck as, a, as an image as well of thinking about how time opens and closes and loops and can come apart <laughs> as well um, in all of these bodily experiences that we have. And I think the other thing that then is much more maybe oh, structural, that was all structural, so that's a bad word, bad word for it. Um, but something that I really appreciated as a reader who's really struggled with reading because of fatigue over the last couple of years was these really short segments. And so it was a very readable book for someone who can kind of pick it up and put it down. And was that quite intentional or? Yeah, but very intentional. And I, I think I started writing like that because it's, how I, I could actually manage writing prose mm. that I do write in fragments and um, piece them together later. Um, and it's partly, again, to do with this 
lack of sense of linear time that when I'm working on something, I'm actually writing everything simultaneously, like a kind of big writing spider <laughs> with or writing <laughs> octopus with all of my limbs spread out everywhere, doing everything at, at once, like all things are are at once. And um, so then I, I end up with all of these fragments that I know want to come together, but they kind of come together in a kind of mosaic or a kind of a mixtape kind of feeling that I know how they need to piece together. Um, so I was writing in fragment partly because it's what I could manage as a writer who is chronically ill. But I was also thinking about that reading experience of, of being chronically ill as well and um, what you can do in a, a short period of time or a short burst of energy. And there's a lot of really interesting writing now about um, disability writing and fragments and particularly pain experiences and, and mm -hmm. fragments and how it can do that, that it can both capture that experience and also be accessible for people who are in that experience as well. And it's that, do you think that that's important to you as someone who's also a poet? Um... Yeah, very much so. I mean, in in a very practical way, again, as well, that I, I started writing poetry more than any other kind of writing when I was a teenager and I first became really seriously ill, that I realised poetry was something that I could still manage when I couldn't manage the um kind of 10 page adventure stories <laughs> that I'd also been writing up until that point I, I just didn't have the stamina for them anymore so there is something about um stamina but there is something I think also about maybe just how my mind works how my mind works with metaphor how my mind works with the space of the page as well that thinks about things in that kind of slightly fragmented lyric way too Nice. That's really interesting. Um, so you mentioned that you had some pushback against <laughs> the, the formatting of the book or the structuring of the book. And I thought that could maybe lead into talking a little bit about navigating the publishing scene and the literary industry as, um, as someone who's disabled and chronically ill. I know, obviously, Anyone who follows you on Twitter will know you have a lot to say about this. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, this could be a kind of ten-hour um, rant if I were to let it out in that way. Um, for this book in particular, it's it's been really interesting um, because I've I had the first full draft of this in 2018, and I started querying agents in 2018 with that first full draft, and. Um, it wasn't until Caro Clark, my agent at Portobello Literary, got in touch with me in 2021 and said, hey, are you still looking for representation for that mm -hmm. book? That I found someone who understood what the book was trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe I should say Caro found me and <laughs> understood <laughs> what the book was trying to do and, and saved it because I had run out of, of people to go to um, with it and I think part of that is there is a, a lot of tension I think between publishing wanting to be more open to diverse voices and people from marginalized backgrounds who it doesn't necessarily understand as a structural thing um 
but then not having the people within it to understand those stories. <laughs> and, and that's the fundamental problem. Um, or, or to understand the needs of the people telling those stories. So this isn't just a thing for disabled writers. It's a thing for writers of, of all kinds of marginalized um, backgrounds and life experiences that often we are, when we are brought into publishing, it's quite hard to get there in the first place. And then when you do get there, you you find that um, the very basic needs you have are not met by that process. Mm-hmm. And I have certainly had experiences of that, <laughs> which is the polite way of putting it. Um, but but also for, for this book, there was really a problem of, of people just simply not understanding what I was trying to do with it, um, which I feel a bit better about saying now, <laughs> now that some people have read it and gone, this I do get this and this is what I needed to read. I find I that so fascinating, that. given yeah. that I've only heard very kind of very positive responses of people who felt very seen. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, which is is what I hoped would happen and, and has happened and has felt very vindicating to me because I was certain that that was the case, that there was a market out there of people who needed this book. And in the writing of it, Um, when I was struggling with it and occasionally I'd talk about it online and people would say, but we really need this book. And then it did put quite a lot of pressure on me when I was getting to publishing it, thinking, is this going to be the book that people hoped it would be and and that they need? Or are they going to be really disappointed? (laughs) Because that would have been really awful on so many different levels. Um, But I I just could not persuade a lot of other people Mm. along the way, whether that's agents, editors, even editors who really liked my writing still didn't see that there was a commercial place or value for this book as it was. And that, to me, is a reflection of the industry not really understanding what it's wanting to do when it tries to diversify. Mm. I think I would just do a really quick shout out there to Caro Clark, who is absolutely incredible. And as far as I'm aware, is um, is agenting many disabled writers in the UK. Yeah, (laughs) Caro's accidentally scooping up all of the disabled writers (laughs) because they're one of the few people, I, I think, in... UK publishing who actually understands disabled mm. narratives rather than just wanting to represent disabled people. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think they're doing incredible work. Um, what would you what advice would you give to someone who maybe is an emerging writer or maybe is a writer but has recently developed chronic illness and is kind of negotiating things in you? What's the what are the tips that you wish you'd known? Um, fundamentally ask for what you need and keep asking for it. You Mm -hmm. will have to keep asking for it. You will feel a lot of the time like you're banging your head against a brick wall asking for it. Um, One of the things that I did, which I was encouraged to do by seeing other disabled writers do this, was make an access rider. So Mm -hmm. it's basically just a Word document which has my access needs in it for different kinds of things, whether that's events or um publishing schedules things like that 
which can be quite hard to do when you're chronically ill, and especially in the early stages of chronic illness, I think, when you might not be sure what you do need. And mm-hmm. I found that myself often that I, I don't know what would be helpful to me. And often things are suggested for us, which seem like they should be helpful and actually aren't really um, in that occupational health way where you're given all sorts of different desks and chairs and stuff to try. <laughs> and weirdly, it still doesn't stop you being chronically ill. <laughs> it doesn't really help your productivity at all. When sometimes what you actually need is more time or sometimes less time or time in particular ways or um, clarity of, of deadlines, for example, for me is, is a big thing. Like there's no point in me making myself ill to reach a deadline. And then it turns out that it was pretty arbitrary and no one's going to do anything for three months. Um, what's yep. the point in that? <laughs> and that is a, a common thing um, in, in the book world. So um Things like that, I, I think, kind of working out, and unfortunately, a lot of that I think is is by trial and error. But having an access rider where you can at least put down what you know that you need, it then saves you just time and energy. That instead of having to write it out again for every single person, you can just pop that in a email. And then they don't read it and they still ask you all of the same questions is what I found time and time again. So I'd love to say that that process works. I think at least it it does mean you can kind of keep pointing back to it and go, you could just read that document I've sent you. (laughs) I would say as an events organizer, I find it really helpful when I know like all of these things are in one place. It's all there. And I also think it helps, like I remember one year at the festival I worked at, somebody asked for a quiet space Mm. and it meant the next year we were thinking about that. Yeah. And I do think, I mean, something that we said to the emerging translators who are doing mentorships with NCW is like, it's so hard to ask for these things, but remember you're asking for the people who come after you. Exactly. And and I think that makes it much easier. I mean, personally, I find... um, that asking for things for other people is 10,000 times easier Mm. than asking for things for myself. I find it very hard um, and have struggled a lot in the past with asking for what I need for myself. And I find it much easier to do it when I'm thinking this is not just about me, this is about other people too. Um, What would you like to see non-disabled, non-chronically ill (laughs) writers and colleagues doing? Oh, stepping up a bit <laughs> would be really nice. Uh, not to be rude, um, I've I've had some very frustrating experiences this year in particular. Um, as I carry on as a chronically ill writer who can't afford to get more ill, um, so I'm still actively avoiding getting COVID. And most of the book industry in the UK seems to be really cool about getting infected and infected mm. over and over again. And um, I know you know that that's not a <laughs> fun scenario <Not> <laughs> um, either. Um, and the thing I found most disappointing about that is that I have a lot of messages of support from people. I have a lot of people telling me that they really understand what I'm doing and they support what I'm doing when I ask for access and when I ask for um, particularly remote access for for events. Mm -hmm. Um, But then 
what practically happens is the non-disabled writers have gone back to a, in the large part, um, to a pre-2020 working life where they are all doing things in person. Those of us who can't participate in that are just blocked out and ignored mm. and largely forgotten about. Um, our books aren't seen, our, our books aren't read. We, we just kind of disappear. Um, and obviously that was happening to a, a lot of chronically ill people before COVID as well. But the fact that during that year of, of lockdowns in 2020, we realized that there were ways where we could open these things up and include more people, people who are housebound, people who can't travel for various reasons. Um, and then that has shut back down again which some yeah. people predicted and at the time were told they were being very negative and um you know uh, how could they how could they be so mean and rude to suggest that people would shut them out deliberately <laughs> mm-hmm. um and the most disappointing thing to me has t- been to see how few people will stand up and even ask questions even say to the events that they're going to, is the remote access here for people who can't be here in person? If there isn't, why isn't there? Is this something mm. you could do in the future? Could you build this into your planning in the future? And I just don't see that happening on a large scale. And it just feels like a another part of the book world in which those of us who can't be visibly present are just then erased essentially even by people who you know will say to you in in one breath I value your work so much (laughs) Uh, and and then turn around and go oh I haven't seen you in three years why is that Mm -hmm. (laughs) can you tell me what you would like for the book industry I feel like it's so like you said there's the 10-hour rant um which (laughs) is also very necessary but I also think we need to Imagine the new possibilities. Yeah. What, what would so, you like to see? Um, so fundamentally, thinking ab- about accessibility in planning levels at all times, mm-hmm. and that means a wide range of accessibility. One of the frustrating things I've been dealing with recently is um, some events that I was invited to, particularly to talk about disabled access, neither of which were accessible to me. And <laughs> I know, and having to go back to those organizations again and again and say, how can you be doing this thing about accessibility and not be thinking about remote access, especially when you're in a place that a lot of people outside that place can't get to regardless of of disability. Um, And that planning level is just not there. So I'd, I'd like to see people really putting their planning into action at early stages, rather than tacking thoughts about accessibility on later on where it's it's never going to work. Um, Recognizing that disability is a a vast thing and access needs will vary remarkably, even within people with the same condition, access needs can vary vastly. Um, So you need to talk to a range of disabled people with different conditions, and you're never going to make everything 100% accessible for everybody, but at least trying uh, and thinking about that as being a fundament to what you're mm. doing 
rather than something that you kind of stick on afterwards as a little bit of an extra is is my big dream yeah I remember years ago I was doing as front of house at a book festival I was doing some disability awareness training and there was one of those awful awful games group work hate it um but there were these statements and we were meant to say whether they were true or false and one of them was the book festival has more important thing, things to spend its money on than accessibility. And I thought that, I mean, the point was obviously you're meant to say false, but you're meant to have a discussion about it. Yes. <laughs> and I thought the group that actually came up with the most interesting answer to that was it's not an add on. It was, you know, their point was like, this isn't a single thing you're spending money on. It's something you're planning in at every yeah. stage of the way which I think really reflects what you were saying there, but I thought yeah. it was such a good way of thinking about it, of it's never just, okay, well, we've got everything in place yeah. and now we think about accessibility because by that point, if you're in it, Edinburgh, it, yeah. where I am, you've already got yeah. a building that probably has exactly. steps up. It. So. Exactly. It's it's always, almost always too late at, mm. at that point if, if you're thinking about it later on. And also because you're never going to have the funding to do it if you're not building the funding in early on. Um so a lot of people have talked about the fact that the Arts Council England has a specific pot for accessibility as well, but it's really hard to work mm-hmm. out how to access that, I think, if you don't already know how to do it. Uh, and it can be quite obscure for people. And I think even organisations that do have ACE funding don't know that they can get specific funding for accessibility. Um, but also, the other thing I'd like to see is, is funding bodies actually prioritising that too. So funding mm-hmm. bodies not funding things that aren't accessible or coming back to things that aren't accessible and saying, um, look, we would like to fund this, but you have to put an accessibility fund in and making that a given again, rather than an add-on. Yeah, absolutely. And so we recently got funding to do a project together. We did. It's very exciting. (laughs) I know. Um, Do you want to say a little bit about it? Um, I or, or do you? <laughs> oh, I, I, really, I said that and I was like, I wrote the funding bit, didn't I? So yeah. <laughs> um, I should say I'm a German to English translator as well as working at NCW and I've been translating a 19th century poet called Annette von Rosterhulshoff. That's the short version of her name. And I was really interested in the fact that Droster is, she's the only female poet from the 19th century who's really still read in Germany. Um and she is looking at her biography, arguably queer, and experienced illness throughout her life. And I was aware of that and aware of your biography of Dorothy Wordsworth, who has very similar kind of biographical details and similarly arguably queer, um, clearly experienced chronic illness. And we wanted to bring the two together. And now we can, which is very exciting um, with its Four Nations International Creative Scotland funding, and we're working with a wonderful German writer, Anna Kolubkowitz, who's, again, a little bit of an expert on Druster. And we're creating a poetry psychogeography walk. Which I think both of them would have been very excited about. <laughs> would have been so excited about it. Um, and yeah, I think it's lovely because Dorothy obviously walked a lot and was, is very associated with the Lake District. And... Um, Annetta is very associated with uh, Munsterland, the the area where she lived in um, um, in Germany. I've I've joked that you should have a drinking game of like every time a moor is mentioned in one of her poems. <laughs> but uh, yes, <laughs> she's very fond of them. Um, 
And one of the things that I really like about that is that we have thought about, so it, it's something that people can do wherever they are. And the idea is that you could take this for a hike or you could be going to the corner shop or you could be at home, um, which, yeah, I think is quite exciting. I think it's really exciting and exciting to to bring together these two writers who, as, as far as I know of, have never really been thought of together either. Um, and they have very similar dates and very similar kinds of um, interests, I, I think, um, rather than necessarily biographies. Um, and the idea that we can kind of, we, we've been talking about it for a while of these kind of intersecting points between them again and, and being able to bring them together and share something about them with other people, I think is really exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. And I think something that for me is quite interesting is I think we think a lot about queer forebears um, mm. and people, you know, like obviously Oscar Wilde and Virginia Woolf. And there's a real visibility at this point of who are the people who came before us in a queer sense. And I maybe this is because it isn't something that I had spent so much time thinking about until more recently, but I feel like that's still something that's emerging more. Yeah. It it is it is and in fact it's still just Disability History Month while we're recording this. Course, so yeah. uh, Disability History Month is from mid November to mid December, and it is it doesn't have the the visibility of of other history months as with a a lot of um, disability centered things I suppose. Um, and what's really interesting though I think is when you start to look at literary history and artistic history. Mm-hmm. Um, that by our modern conception of disability, um, huge numbers of the writers and artists we admire were disabled, um, but often their disability is kind of written out of their biography or skimmed over in some way, as, as it was with Dorothy. And mm-hmm. that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write Recovering Dorothy and kind of put her back into disability history, because she's so, so often spoken about as the opposite, actually, as someone who was kind of hyper fit in some way um, with all of this walking she did when when she was younger, ignoring all of the bits where she couldn't walk or where she had to stop a walk because she had a bowel disorder. Um, and all of these uh, kinds of things that, that were just part of her daily life and a part of the lives mm-hmm. of lots of people. But those are, are just skimmed over all the time in the biographies. And I think actually probably there's a lot of writers who are like that. And I only found out recently, for example, through Carl Knights, uh, who was an amazing queer disabled poet, um, that Rosemary Sutcliffe was disabled. And hmm. just this year, there's a, a new republication of her memoir of her early life, Blue Remembered Hills, which is, is being republished with an introduction by the disability studies scholar, Tom Shakespeare, um, as well. And to see these people... And Rosemary Sutcliffe is someone who I read all of her books when I was a child. I loved her so much. I had no idea she was a disabled writer. And um, being able to see yourself represented both in the texts, which she did do. like So there are disabled characters in, in most of her children's books. Um, but also to see yourself represented as a writer, I think, is, is really important to think about what might be possible for you. Absolutely. I feel like I'm really aware of that in, in Scotland as mm. um, 
there's a whole generation of, of female writers who wrote because of Liz Lockhead and they, they saw a woman writing in the tongue they spoke. Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone from Ali Smith to Kirsten Innes will sort of say, like, I saw, I saw that someone was doing this and um, it's so, so important. And I also think it's important in terms of, I mean, I know this is something we've spoken about, but what we don't read when it's not our experience. And yeah. this is something that I've kind of said, like, I didn't really pay attention to the sentences that said Brewster yeah. was repeatedly ill from childhood. And yeah. I kind of had this moment where it hit me, um, which I think is fascinating, what the, the bits that we don't realise we're missing. Yeah. And and often those are just bits, and I think that's part of the problem that you do get those those sentences. Like someone I've been really interested, and in, another amazing, um, slightly later uh, Lake District uh, woman writer is Lou, and also interesting in terms of possible queerness is is Louis Armit, um, mm-hmm. Mary Armit, known as Louis, um, who uh, is remembered in the Armith Museum in Ambleside and in the campus um, of, of the University of Cumbria in Ambleside. Um, but she was an amazing naturalist and writer. And when I was looking her up because of her amazing records of of the birds of Lakeland, so she wrote all of these um, naturalist observations of um, wildlife and flora and fauna in the Lake District. Um, but when I was looking her up for that, it said, of, of course, she was a famous invalid. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> My wow. excitement at that point. <laughs> but that's all I know at the moment. And I, I want to know more. She's someone I want to look into more because I think she was fascinating in in many ways that um, she had two sisters as well. And they all had strange experiences with marriage and then singleness and living together. And mm. uh, yeah, a, a really fascinating story. Well, that sounds incredible. Next biography? Maybe. It's certainly something for the future. I, I never know. I, I always have all of these ideas, Annie. My my head, as I say, like this kind of octopus, octopodal <laughs> mind um, mm. that I have lots of different ideas. Almost like, say it is an octopus. I have all these ideas hidden under shells on the seafloor. <laughs> Um, and every now and again, I lift one of them up and go, woo, and then, <laughs> and then put, it, put it back down again. think, maybe that's not the time for that one. <laughs> and then one of them kind of takes on a life of its own and, and hits me on the head. And that's when I work on that one. You know, I think that's actually the best description of you I've ever heard. <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Um, I, I don't know at this point. Um I'm so excited now thinking about other ill people in the Lake District. Um, I've lost <laughs> lost my thread. <laughs> this is what happens when you have two uh, slightly brain-fogged people talking to each other, <laughs> isn't it? We, we are existing in, in crypt time right now. Um, I'm, I am the octopus on the seafloor, and uh, I'm just waving all of my limbs around right now. Again, a perfect moment for a podcast, really, really playing to the audio medium here. Well, thank you so much, Polly. This was as ever delightful. And um, yeah, I, I was so pleased to be able to have this conversation with you, but also to share it with others. And I look forward to continuing it soon. That's so exciting. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Polly and Annie for that fascinating conversation. 
and of course to you for listening. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook and you can sign up to the NCW newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website by going to the Support Us page. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and a review, because this helps other writers to find us too. Thanks again. Keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode.